Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for July 25th through 31st, 2022. This is covering the Book of Esther. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hello, scriptures. Yay! And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 37 minutes, 30 seconds. Excellent. What would that be daily? 5 minutes, 21 seconds. So manageable. Here we've got time codes. If you want to take it chapter by chapter, you can, or buckle up and we'll talk about the whole book of Esther together. And for those of you who have inquired about prints of my art that I use in the show, check out 43rdstreet.com. The link is in the video description. So here we are in the book of Esther. Let's take our introduction from the seminary manual. It says, The events in this book occurred while many of the Jews were living in Persia after being deported from Jerusalem. Most scholars place the events recorded in the book of Esther between about 482 BC and 478 BC. The book of Esther is one of only two books in the Old Testament that is named for a woman. Additionally, the book of Esther contains no direct references to God, but he is everywhere taken for granted, as the book infers a providential destiny and speaks of fasting for deliverance. Although the book of Esther comes after the book of Nehemiah in the Bible, according to some scholars, the events recorded in Esther may have occurred about 30 or more years before the events recorded in Nehemiah. We also get this further insight from the New Oxford Annotated Bible. Esther is the only book of the Hebrew Bible unattested among the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls. More than 100 additional versions are included in the Greek, Septuagint, version that do not appear in surviving Hebrew manuscripts. These verses are excluded from their Bibles by Jews and Protestants, while Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christians accept them. It is interesting to note that unlike our current text, which doesn't directly reference God, Those verses from the Greek mention God frequently. Now, remember the first mighty empire of this region was Assyria, the big fish, who conquered Israel and scattered them. They were in turn taken over by Babylon, the bigger fish, who became the next empire and conquered Judah, taking them into exile. During the Jewish exile, the Persians, the even bigger fish, took over the rule of the empire, and their capital city was in Shushan. This is where we find the Jewish maiden Esther. And so let's jump into the book of Esther in chapter 1. Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, made a feast unto all his princes and his servants in verse 3. Now, quick aside, who is Ahasuerus? The Institute Manual tells us, This name is a Hebrew transliteration from the Persian Ksai Yarsha, better known as Xerxes, the Greek form of the name. Yes, but we will call him Ahasuerus or Ahazi for short. (laughs) Meanwhile, Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in verse 9. So we've got two feasts going on, one for the men, one for the women. We don't know why those two feasts were separate, It could be that was just proper for the time. It could also be that there was just too many people or whatever. It doesn't say. 
On the seventh day of the king's feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, as it says in verse 10, the king commanded his chamberlains, verse 11, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Now what is the reason Vashti wouldn't come? Disgust at being an object of display for drunken men? Involvement with her own party? Mean-spiritedness? This is never actually explained. The fact that no reason is given may be that the reason was not relevant to the author. The dangerous precedent of disobedience to the king seems to be the issue. If the king did not have honor in his own house, how could he have honor in his own kingdom? It was decided that the queen had not just done wrong to the king in this dishonor, but to all the people that were in the vast provinces of the king. Her action would lead to the destabilizing of order and to contempt and wrath, as it mentions in verse 18. So the king was persuaded to replace her. Now, perhaps this was all vanity and pride against pride, but it got me thinking about how important it is that we show honor to one another as couples. Sometimes a group of wives or husbands may get together and play the my spouse is so game. This involves complaining about your spouse as a competition to show who's got it worse. It's supposed to be a bonding game, but it's at the expense of the person that we profess to love. It dishonors them. Let me share a quick anecdote. Again, understanding that this may not be directly what the author is talking about, but sometimes when we read the scriptures, regardless of what the intent of the author is, it may inspire ideas, remembrances, teachings that can be valuable to us. So with that in mind, let me share this quick story. When I worked as an artist, I was doing a mural in Georgia. It was for a school, and I was there with a colleague of mine. The salesperson was also there, the one who had negotiated the job. He was there with a partner of his, and he was really the epitome of the stereotypical salesperson, someone maybe in his 50s. He had and had showed his pictures of what even he would call his trophy wife, a young wife, very beautiful, and a fancy car and all that. Anyways, he was in the process of complaining about his spouse talking about all the things that she did wrong and how dumb she was. His companion was jumping in, sharing those same things. My colleague had been divorced and was happy to jump in and talk about problems with his ex. And after listening for a little while and thinking, there's nothing positive is coming from this, I jumped in and said, you know, my wife is great. And then I shared two or three things about how awesome she is and what she does so wonderfully well, something that comes to me very easily. I was amazed at the change in tone. Immediately, the competition wasn't, well, my wife's so bad because of. It immediately switched to, well, my wife's great because. And so everyone tried to outcompete one another on how great their spouse was. It was really quite wonderful to watch. And we all left with a very different feeling than what it started with. I think that's a much better game. It's a better game. It's a better game. Let me share with you a quote from Camille Franck Olson's book, Women of the Old Testament. 
she offers this insight. Vashti and Esther present two very different women. Vashti defiantly stood up for her rights, but at what cost? She was stripped of her royal rank for her haughty example, deposed as queen, and possibly even executed for her bold refusal to obey the king's command. Could Vashti have found a better way to avoid compliance with her husband's demands and at the same time retain her position of rectitude and royalty? Was Vashti's approach the best choice to preserve her principles or was she too rash? In contrast, Esther was coy, easily entreated, and quick to accommodate. Where Vashti was assertive and confrontational, Esther was passive and malleable. Vashti was defiantly unbending to demands that violated her sense of right and wrong. Esther appeared quite mild until she accepted her own power to act. Hmm. So with that, let's get to know Esther. Let's take it to chapter two. In the first few verses, the king sought a new queen from among the fair young women of the kingdom. Verse five. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Now let's see, Kish, where have we heard that name before? If you'll recall from a few lessons ago, King Saul's father was named Kish, and he also was a Benjamite. Now, King Saul's father would have lived several centuries before this story, so this may be someone who just happens to have the same name. But here's something else to consider. In our video, How We Got the Bible, we mention that the first translations of the Old Testament scripture were made from Hebrew to Aramaic, the language of Babylon. These translations were called Targum. In the Targum Shinai, or Second Targum, Mordecai's genealogy is greatly expanded, and it claims that he is the son of several men leading up to Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, son of Kish. So is this translation more accurate or evidence of an embellishment made by someone long ago? You decide. Either way, it seems that our author wants to connect Mordecai with Saul, and we'll actually see another piece of evidence for that coming up. Let's go on in verse 7. And he brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Now, one more side note. Hadassah is Hebrew for myrtle, as in a myrtle tree. The name Esther is a Persian name that means star. This is the name the author uses to refer to her for the rest of the book. And that's interesting because people like Joseph and later we'll read about Daniel and his friends have their Jewish name, but then they also are given a local name, Egyptian or Babylonian. Right. So here it is with Esther as well. Let's go on in verse 8. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, 
and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification, with such things as belonged to her. In this case, this means her portion, referring to food. And seven maidens, which were meat to be given her, out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Now, it might be useful to take a look at the English Standard Version translation of verse 9, just to kind of give us a better perspective of what's happening here. It says, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Going on to verse 10. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. So Esther has been charged not to reveal herself as a Jew. In this way, she wasn't like Daniel and his friends who insisted on foods that allowed them to keep their religious dietary laws. They stood out as Jews and won recognition and respect in Babylon. Esther is following Mordecai's instructions to keep her head down and to conform to Persian customs, at least for now. This can be a challenge for readers since we may not know how to reconcile Esther's disregarding of dietary laws, like in verse 9, and even more challenging, preparing all year to spend one night in the king's bed, verse 14. And on the off chance that she's chosen to be queen, she will have married outside of the covenant. This is not the kind of hero we're used to reading about. What's interesting to me is that the author seems to have no concern about that. It is written in such a way that we are to see it as something that must be done in order for Esther to be where she needs to be in order to save her people. Certainly, there are clues that she is more than just beautiful and that her goodness helps her find favor with those around her, especially those in a position to help her succeed. She's not openly rebelling against God. The things that are done here seem to be of necessity, not out of preference or desire. In verses 12 through 15, it describes the process of beautification each woman in the harem goes through for a year before spending a night with the king. This will then allow her to advance to the second harem of concubines, but she may never be called by the king again. In Esther's case, Haggai helped and counseled her to give her the best chance for success, and she obeyed and did what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. That's from verse 15. Well, let's go back to the chapter, verse 16. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is in the month Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, in verses 21 through 23, after Esther was made queen, Mordecai discovered a plot to assassinate the king and told Esther about it. As a result, the would-be assassins were caught and killed. Now, why would Mordecai want to help this leader of the nation that holds them in captivity? 
One answer might be found in the instructions given by the prophet Jeremiah before the Jews were taken into exile. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. That's Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Even as a minority group in this vast nation, we will see how the Lord will bless them as they strive to follow this prophetic instruction. And that brings us to Esther chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. The author seems to want to establish a connection in an upcoming rivalry between Haman, whom we've just met, and Mordecai the Jew. He wants to make a connection with perhaps an ancient rivalry. See, Agag was the king of the Amalekites, the ancient enemy of Israel. That goes all the way back to Exodus 17. Agag was defeated by King Saul and killed by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. After 500 years from that time, the animosity continues. Remember Exodus 17 verse 16 says, The Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So when it says that Haman was an Agagite, it seems to connect him with Agag in some way the Amalekite. And maybe this is all coincidence, but again, Kish being mentioned in Mordecai's genealogy, and here Agag is brought into Haman's genealogy. So again, the war continues. Going on in verse 2, and all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Here, it's not clear why Mordecai would not bow down. Jews had no problem showing respect for royalty or other important people by bowing down for them. There's a long list of those references. For whatever reason, Mordecai apparently felt he could not bow down to him without compromising his identity as a Jew. The only clue given in the text relates to the animosity between the Amalekites and the Jews. That would explain Mordecai's refusal to honor Haman and Haman's desire to completely destroy the Jews, which will come up later in the story. Let's go on to verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus even the people of Mordecai. Let's skip ahead to verse 8. And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed." And I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. And the king said unto Haman, 
the silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. <laughs> doesn't this guy seem like he doesn't have, I don't know if it's not a backbone or he's not too clever. I mean, someone will suggest something and he's like, yeah, let's put that into law. <laughs> you, you'll see that continuing to go. He's a little bit of a doofus the way he's described here. So anyway. Going on in verse 12. Then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month. And there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Okay, so we're going to kill all the Jews and take all their stuff on a particular day. Doesn't that seem a little bit odd to put an entire declaration of policy out there? I mean, we do have a similar situation in the Book of Mormon, where in Third Nephi chapter 1, the wicked people kind of warn that if the sign of Samuel isn't fulfilled on this particular day, then they're going to put them to death. But this seems... I don't know, very organized. And, well, it won't work out well for Haman. So let's go on to Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 1. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So in the next few verses, Esther sent a messenger to Mordecai to find out what his concern was. Through this representative, Mordecai sent a message back to Esther in verse 8. Also, he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it to Esther, and to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him, and to make request before him for her people. Now, see, that seems like a good idea. Just talk to her husband about it. What's the problem? Well, Esther is going to tell us the problem in verse 11. She says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days." Now, the seminary manual offers this insight. It says, During this time, kings were frequently in danger of assassination. So they surrounded themselves with guards and had harsh penalties for anyone who came uninvited into any room they were in. Esther would be risking her life if she went in to the king without having been called. Her life would be spared only if he held out his golden scepter to her. So why had Esther not been called to come in for 30 days? 
Put yourself in Esther's shoes. What might she be thinking? Is this really a good time to test your relationship to the king if he hasn't called for you in a month? Let's take a look at Mordecai's advice in verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? This is one of the great lines of the book of Esther. The Lord can place us in particular circumstances so we can help others. The Come, Follow Me manual includes this quote from Elder Ronald A. Rasband in the October 2017 General Conference where he says, quote, What may appear to be a random chance is, in fact, overseen by a loving Father in heaven. The Lord is in the small details of our lives, end quote. I've always loved that quote, the Lord is in the small details of our lives. The seminary manual offers this short quote from Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf from the October 2008 General Conference. He says, The Lord gave you your responsibilities for a reason. There may be people and hearts only you can reach and touch. Perhaps no one else could do it in quite the same way. Nice. Have you ever seen that in your life? Has the Lord placed just the right someone in your life at just the right time to bless you? Think about your current situation. Who in your life are you able to bless? Let me share another quote from Elder James E. Faust. This is from the April 2003 General Conference. He says, quote, These are challenging times. I believe your spirits may have been reserved for these latter days that you, like Esther, have come to earth for such a time as this. It may be that your most significant everlasting achievements will be your righteous influence on others, that your divine, feminine, inner beauty and intuition will find expression in your quiet strength, gentleness, dignity, charm, graciousness, creativity, sensitivity, radiance, and spirituality. Enhance these sublime feminine gifts. Close quote. Nice. So what is Esther's response in verse 15? Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. This is really a turning point for Esther. It is here that she seems to embrace her Jewish identity and becomes a decisive actor in the story, risking her life and issuing orders, we will see a different Esther going forward from this key moment. From the April 2014 General Conference, we get this quote from President Thomas S. Monson, quote, We will all face fear, experience ridicule, and meet opposition. Let us, 
all of us have the courage to defy the consensus, the courage to stand for principle. Courage, not compromise, brings the smile of God's approval. Courage becomes a living and an attractive virtue when it is regarded not only as a willingness to die manfully, but also as the determination to live decently. As we move forward, striving to live as we should, we will surely receive help from the Lord and can find comfort in his words. End quote. Very nice. That brings us now to Esther chapter 5. Let's start in verse 1. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. Can you imagine how she must be feeling? She is in a position of comfort and privilege. Is that worth risking? Is there a comfort zone you need to get out of? in order to bless the lives of others? Question to consider. Going on in verse 2. And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom. Well, here he is again. He's very accommodating, this king. Very suggestible. He is. Now, for the rest of Esther, the seminary manual has a great activity, and that is to read the account of Esther aloud in a way that resembles how it's read on the Jewish holiday of Purim. Learn more about that in the Bible Dictionary under Feasts. As part of this celebration, the story of Esther is read aloud. When the name Mordecai is read, many listeners cheer. In contrast, when the name Haman is read, they boo or show disapproval. So, let's read it. This will use a selection of verses in the coming chapters, and we'll mark those in the visual of the YouTube video. After the king asked Esther what she wanted from him, she asked if he and Haman would come to a banquet that she had prepared for them. During this banquet, Esther invited the king and Haman to attend a second banquet, which would be held the following day. Let's pick it up in chapter 5, verse 9. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Haman said, moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself, and tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused a gallows to be made. Now a quick aside here on those gallows from the Institute Manual. The gallows was probably not an elaborate gallows, but rather a high pole or stake from which Mordecai could be hanged. 
Fifty cubits would be about seventy-five feet. The higher the stake, the farther it could be seen. Haman's intent seems to have been to make a real example of Mordecai. Back to the story. The king could not sleep the night before the banquet. He had some official reports read to him and learned that Mordecai had saved his life by stopping the assassination attempt. As a result, he had Haman bestow a great honor on Mordecai, further fueling Haman's hatred of Mordecai and the Jews. Let's pick it up in chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed, even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he, and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Boo! Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. After Haman died, King Ahasuerus gave a second decree to preserve the Jews and give them power to destroy their enemies within the kingdom. The Feast of Purim was instituted to help the Jews remember their deliverance from Haman. Mordecai was elevated to second in command in the kingdom. When you think about Esther, what qualities impress you most? From the October 2013 General Conference, Elder D. Todd Christofferson offers this. He says, quote, Former Young Women General President Margaret D. Nadald taught, The world has enough women who are tough. We need women who are tender. There are enough women who are coarse. We need women who are kind. There are enough women who are rude. We need women who are refined. We have enough women of fame and fortune. We need more women of faith. We have enough greed. We need more goodness. We have enough vanity. We need more virtue. We have enough popularity. We need more purity. My plea to women and girls today is to protect and cultivate the moral force that is within you. Preserve that innate virtue and the unique gifts you bring with you into the world. Your intuition is to do good and to be good. And as you follow the Holy Spirit, your moral authority and influence will grow. To the young women, I say, don't lose that moral force, even before you have it in full measure. Take particular care that your language is clean, not coarse, that your dress reflects modesty, not vanity. 
and that your conduct manifests purity, not promiscuity. You cannot lift others to virtue on the one hand if you are entertaining vice on the other. Close quote. Don't make the mistake that this lesson is only for women and girls. I learn so much from Esther about how to be noble and faithful and brave. But Esther isn't the only courageous one in our story. Look at the way Mordecai served. In Esther chapter 10, verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. Now here, seeking the wealth is better translated seeking the good or welfare. This is how it's often translated in other English translations. He served his people in his way and with the gifts God had given him. Let's close with a quote from Camille Frank Olsen's book, Women of the Old Testament. She says this, quote, Every person in the story of Esther exhibits serious character flaws, but the account illustrates that God works through imperfect people to bring about his purposes. Furthermore, the story shows how God intervened through the subtle designs of a woman to protect his people. The story of Esther demonstrates that anyone who feels marginalized or powerless in society generally can significantly influence the world for good. Using one's talents, wisdom, and divine inspiration, any woman or man can bring change by enlightening those who hold power and have the authority to make better laws. Assuredly, many women use their intelligence and charm in such positive ways throughout biblical history. The clear concern of such women was to protect and improve lives, rather than to receive national acclaim. Close quote. Not everyone will be called to serve in such prominent positions as Esther, but we can influence the world for good in powerful and meaningful ways wherever we are and whatever we are doing. So let's do that. Wonderful. What a great lesson from the book of Esther. I hope you paid close attention and were able to take some gems away. You know, finding your own gems is wonderful. Sharing them with others is even better. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. <laughs>